The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, and welcome to Physical Attraction. Today on the show, our guest is Britt Ray. Britt Ray is a broadcaster, author, and public speaker researching emerging science and technology. She tells stories about what she finds via podcasting, interactive documentary, print, and TV. Recently, she has hosted the BBC Tomorrow's World podcast with Ellie Cosgrave. I'm sure a lot of us remember the old TV show, which is now being revived in podcast form. And her first book, Rise of the Necrofauna, The Science, Ethics and Risks of De-Extinction, has just been published by Greystone Books. It'll make a good Christmas present for anyone you know who's interested in the possibilities of using synthetic biology to bring back creatures that were once extinct, or at least some strange new hybrid versions of them, as I found out. Britt has spent a lot of time researching the ethics and capabilities of emerging technologies, especially in biotechnology, and especially related to CRISPR, this new gene editing tool that we talked about a few episodes back. So that's broadly what our discussion is about, and I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so Britt, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So the first thing I'd like to ask you about is um, just broadly your vision for the future. I think technological prediction, it's so difficult to do, and yet we all want to do it because it's such a fun game. And we all know, or perhaps we expect, that society is going to be impacted hugely in the coming decades by these new technologies, be it artificial intelligence, biotechnology. And in both of those, we've seen these huge developments with neural networks providing this new AI platform and CRISPR, particularly in biotechnology seeming to provide an easy way to manipulate the genome, which has been sequenced just in the last few decades. So we've gone from, you know, sequencing the genome for the first time to being able to manipulate it. So from your perspective, as someone who's looked very heavily into CRISPR, which technologies and developments do you expect to see remaking society and the audience should keep an eye on in the next few years to come? Well, you have mentioned the two that come to mind, first and foremost for me in terms of reshaping society based on technological emergence. And that is gene editing technologies such as CRISPR-Cas9. That is what we are talking about with such hyperventilating excitement these days. But we could have a new paradigm of gene editing in the future. We've had gene editing tools in the past, such as zinc finger nucleases and tailins, restriction enzymes, all sorts of different things. But CRISPR is what we have discovered can be used most easily and most cheaply. And it's really taken over the field since it was discovered in 2012. And then the other being artificial intelligence, which has the potential to be completely transformative. So we can get into that afterwards. I suppose I'll just back up to gene editing because what we see now is this set of gene editing tools being sharpened in laboratories all over the world where, you know, a short five years ago, it was just a really obscure acronym that no one knew much about. It has now made itself used in labs of all different scales from super high tech, well-funded laboratories, all the way to do-it-yourself biohacker spaces where people are using simple DIY CRISPR kits in order to do rudimentary experiments on bacteria, for example, 
it has equipped a wide diversity of researchers with what you need to do gene editing. And it works in bacteria and plants and animals and humans. And of course, the enormous rounds of funding that it's garnering for companies like CRISPR Therapeutics or Caribou Biosciences or Intellia or some of these big players in the field are galvanizing resources for the application in human medicine, how we might be able to cure genetic diseases by flipping some of the letters of genetic code that cause faulty disease states to something that then creates a healthy outcome. So you can start thinking about curing sickle cell disease, uh, muscular dystrophy, potentially things such as Huntington's disease even. And so this is an extremely exciting moment. We're now gearing up for a bunch of human trials in 2018 to get off the ground. Already we've seen that uh, what's called somatic gene editing has happened. And this is the kind of gene editing where you correct or you edit the genes in a patient who is alive and has a certain uh, disease state that you can change in them, but you're not changing the reproductive cells. So the change wouldn't be passed on to future generations because it's not passed through the germline. Germline editing is the other kind of editing where we're talking about editing sperm, eggs, and embryos that then create heritable genetic changes that get passed on to people who don't sign up for those changes, which creates a slew of different ethical issues than you have with the other editing where people are patients and can sign up for it. But regardless, in in either of those two types, there's this question of what does it mean to engage in genetic correction and what does it mean to then cross some type of foggy boundary and move into genetic enhancement, which is an incredibly fascinating discussion and one that doesn't have a lot of consensus around it at the moment. We don't know how far CRISPR might bring us in terms of going from CRISPR cures to CRISPR enhancements and this kind of post-human vision of what it'll mean to be part of the species and how that could actually create all forms of new disparities of genetic haves and genetic have-nots. And that all is very uh, easy to get excited about. We have a lot of precedent and science fiction works to show us these kind of Gattaca-like futures that might befall us. But the people working at the forefront of these areas with tools like CRISPR as it relates to human editing are pushing it in a slow way as much as possible in order to figure out how safety and trials can be ensured. And it's, it's very particular medical applications, which I think if we get to those futures, it's going to be a long time, perhaps not that long because you can see how quickly things have moved in just five short years since CRISPR was discovered to work in this way. But I don't think it's simply around the corner that we're going to confront that I think artificial intelligence might move a lot faster. And this is, of course, an area of of huge excitement for many researchers about how it can simplify and and enhance society and the way that we do things as laborers, as workers, as organizers of culture and everything else. But it also is introducing these possibilities for existential risk that people – I think rightly discuss and it's so incredibly difficult to predict when and how and if 
super intelligence will come into this world. And what I'm particularly interested in right now is looking at how artificial intelligence and advanced biotechnology combine. What happens when you see that overlap? When you've got huge mysteries, you mentioned, you know, we sequenced the human genome in the early 2000s. We've come a long way with it since, but still much of the genome is not understood in terms of what different mutations do and how genes interact with each other across this broad expanse of billions of letters of DNA. And when you start adding artificial intelligence to genomics, what might be reaped in terms of new knowledge, which will then feed into things such as our ability to edit genes in different ways that are so far not yet imaginable because it's way too complicated. What we can do now is look at editing single genes, but People often, if I give a talk on something like gene editing, they start asking very quickly about very um, complicated disease states and how they could edit it out of themselves, such as schizophrenia, let's say. (laughs) And uh, these are not things that we can locate in a single gene that we understand. So you're seeing in a sense that there's this intersection between artificial intelligence and biotechnology because... What we have with CRISPR at the moment, as I understand it, and it might be worth um, backing up and talking a little bit how this thing was discovered and how this thing works, um, because as I understand it, it was discovered sort of in an expedition of pure scientific curiosity. People were looking into these self-defense mechanisms that were exhibited by these bacteria, and they discovered that you know this could potentially be harnessed. And then within a few years, we had this whole range of applications for uh, a different technology that might allow us to make genetics not just a statistical science, but also an experimental science. Because mostly, I suppose, and you have to correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm a physicist, not a biologist. But mostly, I suppose what they did before was they looked at particular genes and they looked at particular populations of people and said, ah, you know, in 25% of the people who have this uh, disease condition, we find this gene. So there's a, a statistical link, but not necessarily a causal link. And obviously, it's very rare in the human genome that a single gene is responsible for a single trait. You know, nature doesn't like to work in uh, that simple way for a lot of conditions and a lot of uh, things we might want to enhance about ourselves, like intelligence and so on. Mm -hmm. But with CRISPR, one can imagine potentially saying, "Okay, well, let's see what happens if we switch this gene off. Is it controlling that trait or is it just a statistical uh, alignment? And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, so this, um, this origin of CRISPR... That's the story if, that you might like to tell. Sure. Well, you're absolutely right that it was discovered from a purely scientific foundational research question that was shared across a variety of different laboratories from the early 2000s up until 2012 when it became talked about in the way that we currently do in widespread scientific culture. But essentially... There were these very strange repeating bits of DNA in the genomes of bacteria and other simple organisms called archaea that researchers noticed. It was always these interspaced bits of DNA that had uh, these, they were palindromic. They essentially could be read very similarly forwards and backwards. And in between them, they had randomized different DNA and they would be always clustered in a very particular part of the genome. And it was discovered that these bits of randomized DNA between the repeating bits had DNA fragments that I were identical to 
DNA of a variety of known viruses that were bacteriophages that would attack known bacteria. And so it was hypothesized that this must be somehow linked to a bacterial defense system that would allow it to attack viruses that were trying to invade it and maybe remember bits about that virus so that it could identify the attack in a future scenario if it would ever happen again. And over years, with the input of many people, as it is always the case with science, it's science just, yes. yeah, it's not just the one person we hear about all the time in, in the big news stories, which has it's an easy story to tell. It really is. I mean, you need to, at a certain point, just be able to focus on characters that are followable. However, now with CRISPR, we've got this patent fight between two major groups on the West Coast and the East Coast in the United States, and that has centered our attention around particular characters. And Jennifer Doudna, who has been pioneering the discovery of CRISPR as a gene editing tool from a variety of, you know, these other people's work and building on top of it. She, with Emmanuel Charpentier in 2012, discovered much more about the the function of the various enzymes that are activated in the CRISPR system. So essentially what what they did discover altogether is that when a bacteria is being in injected with viral genetic particles in an, in an act of infection, it's able to detect when that, f- that foreign genetic material is viral and deploy a set of enzymes that can act like molecular scissors and they chop up that viral DNA. And they do that through a variety of actions that involve going out with a kind of sat nav device that can find that viral DNA and, and, when it detects that it's exactly what it's looking for because it has had stored bits of that virus genetic information in its own CRISPR system, then it can deploy these enzymes that chop it up and deactivate the infection. Then it can store bits of that virus in its own genome, kind of like mug shots that it could pull out in the future to detect against future invasions and pass that on to its daughter cells to protect it and so on and so forth. And they discovered that this could be programmable in such a way that if you give it an engineered guide strand of RNA, a close chemical cousin to DNA, that you can introduce into a cell uh, that will be complementary to the DNA in that cell that you want to cut. Let's imagine it's for a particular disease state, like the mutation that causes sickle cell, then you can give the ingredients for the CRISPR system to work along with that guiding strand of RNA that will act like the sat-nav and go and match up like puzzle pieces with the bit of DNA you want to cut. And it can signal for that enzyme to come and do the cutting. And then using natural cellular repair mechanisms that are a part of eukaryotic cells. Um, If we're doing this in a human, for example, it needs to repair its DNA and keep functioning it can heal that break and even while healing itself, introduce new DNA that you edit into it uh, to change the genetic script there. So it becomes this extremely powerful, robust tool for changing genetic bases, the A's, C's, T's, and G's in organisms. But it was discovered to work, yes, as I mentioned, in humans and eukaryotes of all different kinds, different animals and plants, and of course, bacteria where it originated. And so very quickly was picked up for application in in human medicine, but also in agriculture and uh, and even just fun and play in bio, biohacker spaces as we see it now. 
Mm-hmm. So that's that's a really uh, fascinating explanation. Thank you so much for that. And I think we should all just uh, take a second to marvel at evolution for coming up with a system uh, naturally through the process of natural selection that can scan through an entire genome, snip out the relevant part and replace it with another part. I mean, you think it would take people designing nanotechnology, perhaps thousands of years of development or hundreds of years of development or at least a very big research budget to come up with something that could be so efficient and so effective at modifying genomes incredible i absolutely agree i'm just gobsmacked by the elegance of the system and how easy it is for humans to then tweak in order to make it do the work that we want it to do it's it it seems like a tool that's too good to be true in many ways but if anyone is interested in learning about the development of the discovery of how CRISPR works, I highly recommend reading Jennifer Doudna's book, A Crack in Creation, because she, with riveting detail, outlines what's happened over the many years that her lab and others have been involved to build on each other's knowledge in this stepwise fashion towards painting the full picture of CRISPR and its potential as a gene editing tool. And it's it's a fascinating read and just very out in the open about uh, the entire stepwise process. It sounds great. And to hear it from someone who is, you know, quite instrumental in the development of this as a genetic editing tool would be wonderful. I should definitely read that and maybe uh, review it on the show at some point. Um, Oh yeah, that'd be good. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing that I just want to talk about before you move on to the next question is uh, this biohacking phenomenon that we have now that is partially arising from, as you say, how how useful and perhaps easy to manipulate CRISPR as a, as a tool. When you Google it, you can find people saying, I'll sell you a kit that will let you modify your genome and um, mm-hmm. all this kind of crazy thing. And for me, from someone who's spent a long time looking at all of these uh, existential risks, um, I think the idea that anyone with a few hundred thousand dollars or so on could potentially have themselves access to a CRISPR kit and start messing around with E. coli bacteria and changing things in you know, programming genomes that are similar to things like smallpox and so on. That to me is a big concern. But um, some of these biohackers are just sort of out there for the the fun of it and the curiosity of it. And in a sense, that's exciting. But it's almost, you know, it's like a, it's like a scientific gold rush in the sense that everyone's there to be the first to come up with some new application. And we don't quite know where it's going to lead. And similarly mm-hmm. with artificial intelligence, why there's such a good analogy between the two of them is that you you see a sudden rapid development, like in AI, it was that we've got these GPUs and neural networks that you can run with so much more processing power. And we see lots of rapid change, and we don't know how fast that will lead to further rapid change in conclusions. So, you know, it's similar with CRISPR, like you say, in, in five years, we've gone from sequencing the genome to having a tool to edit it. But we don't now know how how many steps further away some of the sci-fi outcomes like Gattaca, like you mentioned, that uh, could be. So um, what is it that these biohackers are doing when they uh, buy a CRISPR kit off the internet and start editing and messing around with genomes? It's interesting. There's this scene of biohackers that seem to have different intentions depending on which biohacker spaces you're looking at or parts of the world and whatnot. But some of the biohackers that are using CRISPR are doing things such as editing their own cells to try and tr- to introduce something like green fluorescent protein, which is a fluorescent biomarker that's used in all rudimentary genetic experiments. Well, not all, but many. And it comes from jellyfish. And so there's a the creator of the DIY CRISPR kit, Josiah Zayner, has been trying to edit his own cells to introduce GFP. 
Uh, he's also been trying to disrupt the G- a gene called um, myostatin that controls muscle growth just to see if he can. And he understands that he's simplifying what is required in order to really make these effects and changes. I mean, he's not going to glow green under UV light anytime <laughs> soon on his arm where he's injected himself. And he's not going to grow super bulky Schwarzenegger muscles anytime soon either, even though he publicly did this at a conference in California a few weeks back. He's trying to demonstrate that genes, genetic technologies are so valuable now that the tools in order to meddle with this material need to be democratized. We need to not only let those who can afford to dedicate many years of their life to getting a postdoc in some kind of biotech related area to grapple with these materials, but we need to share them. He sees it partly as a class issue, and he really is, for politically inclined reasons, trying to flip the script on what it means to access these types of high-tech tools and also change yourself if you want to. Do things that no one should be able to hold you back from, in his mind, and he dreams of worlds in which we could genetically engineer ourselves in whatever ways we like. So he's kind of creating the first prototypes to allow us to imagine what that world could be like, even if his gene edits aren't going to create very clear trait changes anytime soon. And then there are people who are patients and are desperate to have certain kinds of gene therapies become available to them, but they live in a time and in a place where regulators, authorities are not making those therapies available because they need a lot more clinical scrutiny. And so there's been this wave of people, um, for example, a few weeks ago, there was a, a, a young man who has HIV who injected himself with an untested gene therapy to change his own genetics in a fight against his infection. And this has received a lot of attention and a lot of uh, negative response in terms of the lack of safety around this, especially because the therapies were developed by a kind of mysterious company that is wanting to make these tools more widely available. And the thing is, in a place like the United States, as long as you're using private funding, you can do a lot of things. Uh, you can't use national science funding to or, you know, have these clinical trials be done and then made available to you. But if you have someone with the bank account to allow certain types of testing to take place, then you could just do it yourself. We also see other types of people leaving jurisdictions where things are not allowed and going to places where there are regulatory gray zones, such as Colombia, for example, where if a U.S. citizen such as Liz Parrish, a woman who... Ah, yes, the Telomere woman. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so there's this woman, Liz Parrish. She's not a biohacker. She's a, she's a CEO of a company called BioViva and... She got into the biotech space trying to come up with cures for children that have a variety of different diseases, but she discovered that the most pressing disease area is actually age-related diseases. She believes that a lot of our deaths are totally unnecessary. 100,000 people die a day from things like heart disease and cancers, and a lot of that she thinks could be ameliorated if we had better cell therapies to prolong and uh, put off aging of cells. And so she and her company have a few gene therapies and they're not allowed to use them 
in the States they are not FDA approved and they're not allowed to offer them to clients. But she said, okay, we believe in these therapies and our research. What better way to demonstrate it than to be patient zero myself? So in 2015, she flew to Colombia and paid a doctor to inject her with viruses that contain their gene therapies. And one was designed to lengthen her telomeres. And telomeres are these caps on the ends of our chromosomes that shorten as our cells divide. So there is this direct relation between age of cells. The more they divide, the shorter they get. And, uh, and the length of those telomeres. So by having a gene therapy to lengthen them, there is a lot of research suggesting that you could reverse cellular age in certain ways. And then she had another to um, create a robustness of muscle integrity, essentially. And when I did interview her about six months after her therapy, she said that she was feeling great and that she had lengthened her telomeres by about 9% or so, I believe it was at the time, and that she was fantastically happy with what happened, even though she gets emails from people all the time asking her if she had died yet. So <laughs> Playing God, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you have people, you have this interesting scene of people taking things into their own hands, whether it's as a, as a company that wants to run their business elsewhere, provide services elsewhere if it's not legally allowed where they are, or biohackers just trying to change the name of the game of access to to these types of tools. Well, it's just fascinating because, you see, I'd always thought about this from, I guess, quite a cynical and perhaps negative perspective that, you know, there's people um, that we need regulation. And one of the stories that always concerned me was about the uh, the Japanese cult Om Shinrikyo, who were quite a big deal right. back in the uh, 1990s and orchestrated the Tokyo uh, sarin gas attacks and many people will know that they were pursuing things like bioweapons and uh, they were looking for anthrax i believe they were looking for ebola and so on and you think nowadays if they had this kind of technology they would use it for terrible things which is an argument for regulation but then on the other side you know a lot of people as you say they look into the future and they say what happens if some people have access to incredible gene manipulation gene enhancement techniques and they can use them to divide homo sapiens into sort of homo sapiens and homo sapiens affluence, like the wealthy people who can afford to modify their genome and become better than everyone else and uh, enhance their intelligence so that their um, position in society is is dominant and inherited and, uh, you know, cure themselves of diseases while the rest of us are left uh, living with our imperfect genome. And so in a sense, the biohackers are at least making a political statement about that, even if what they're doing yet isn't quite um, having the impacts that they might hope that it does. Um, and then, you know, you mm-hmm. get into the realm of people thinking, well, in, in 10 years, are some of these Spider-Man type villains who are modifying their genomes and so on going to be uh, realistic? It's uh, it's an incredible ethical and, I guess, scientific dilemma to think about. And so mm-hmm. I'd like to say, um, I'd like to just ask, I think we have a tendency when it comes to new technology um, to become that we, we split into people who have techno joy and people who have techno fear. And there doesn't seem to be much of a distinction between some people say this is going to be a complete utopia and everyone will cure all known diseases and will stop mosquitoes from transmitting malaria with gene drives and things like this. And other people are saying this is terrible and it will lead to an existential crisis and destroy the world. I mean, 
Do you think people are predicting things realistically when it comes to particularly CRISPR, but also other technologies? And, and, and where would you find yourself on that spectrum between optimism and pessimism? Well, I do think that some people are depicting it realistically with balanced, nuanced opinions and oversight yeah. <laughs> about the rate at which things are really becoming available, such as Jennifer Dabna, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's well aware of the ethical implications of how this could change society. But listening to her on a podcast yesterday with Sam Harris, I mean, she corrects him at the end many times about how quickly the Gattaca future is coming mm-hmm. and doesn't want to fear monger about that, even though she's the same person who says that she has dreams of having Hitler appear to her while she's sleeping and remind her of the potential eugenic implication of the discovery <laughs> she's <laughs> let loose. So anyway, she's one interesting example of someone who gets it, but then also tones it down. Whereas others are very quick to only talk about the fact that this is eugenics 2.0 or vision of us turning into a society where simply the rich will have all of the genetic enhancements that they want while no one uh, not in their realm will be able to afford this, creating further disparity that we already have and potentially some kind of class warfare. I mean, this is not something I hear bonafide or legitimate scientists standing up and saying ever at conferences. And so there are some very interesting science fictions around this. I actually just read a great book, Change Agent, about particularly CRISPR and how it shapes our society in a sci-fi scenario. It was very entertaining. And, um, you know, I think it's it's generally pretty reasonable in terms of the, the, the researchers who I've, whose labs I've been in who are working with CRISPR and developing it are very aware of the therapeutic potentials and they're stressing that first and foremost, and they are backing it up with a hope for scrutinizing science that creates safety protocols. But the fact is that like everything, it's a technology with the potential for dual use and it it could be used in some unsavory ways. And we're trying our best to get ahead of that conversation and have multi-stakeholder meetings, but there's always more that can be done to enable that. I, I personally, I don't feel like I'm part of either camp. I don't think that I am techno-utopian in any way, shape, or form. I am not uh, a window dresser of technology with the work that I'm doing. I don't want people to just come in and see the pretty picture and appreciate how this is a revolution for nothing but good. However, I don't want to either create a doomsday scenario, only talk in dystopian terms, get seduced too easily by the science fiction drive of many of these scenarios, which as human beings, I think we have wonderful minds for playing on that side of things, <laughs> just telling those kinds of stories. So I think it helps to be very specific and not talk only in general terms, but talk about you know particular therapies, particular applications, particular animals, or whatever the thing might be, because they all, they all carry their own uh, issues that help us understand more realistically what's happening with them. And I guess we have to accept that, I mean, I, I think I would say I'm with you I, in the sense that new technologies will come and they will both have 
positive and negative impacts. The internet, for example, has made it easy for us all to communicate. It's made it possible for this to happen. But then you also have Twitter. So you know, there's a there's a pro and a con to everything. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and, you know, we have to deal with these things. I think one thing I would say is there's probably an amplification effect for people who say the most dramatic things like this is utopia or we're all going to die. These are the things that cause headlines, mm-hmm. whereas a nuance sort of you have to take each case on its merits and you have to consider all of the specifics of the individual situations. Um, you know, it doesn't fit on a front page headline. So I guess those voices can have a tendency to be drowned out. At the same time, we right. have to work on, I mean, I talked to, I've talked to a few artificial intelligence researchers, and one of the things they point out is if we develop something that could become super intelligent and we need to give it a moral and ethical framework for acting, that means we need to decide what that framework should be and what the best ethical thing is to do right. now before the technology is actually developed. And we have to be sure that we're well in advance with our ethics and with our guidelines on how to do these things of when the technology actually becomes feasible. Because otherwise, you know, you have this risk with the gold rush and everyone's excited and lots of people rushing ahead with the technology and they don't stop to consider the ethics because that's just an additional cost in terms of time and resources. And um, But with CRISPR, it seems like there's a particular... Uh, the, the sci-fi aspects of it that people would like to exploit, like enhanced intelligence or, you know, changing your eye colour even or something like that, are more difficult than the therapeutic effects, some of them, because some of the therapeutic effects, we've sort of isolated particular genes that control certain particular diseases. Like I think you mentioned sickle cell anemia, and I've read things about Huntington's disease as well, in mice at least. Um, So it Mm -hmm. may well be that these therapeutic uh, cases come before the science fiction cases in the case of CRISPR. Do you think that's fair to say? I think that's very fair to say. If you have what's called a monogenic, disease where you know that there's a single gene that has the disease causing mutation in it and you can isolate it and you can change that genetic code to something that is the non-disease causing state found in unaffected humans then that's pretty easy to enact essentially because you have the tools to change that genetic script but when it's something much more complicated such as intelligence for example which we don't understand a clear genetic basis of which is very quick to come to mind with these sci-fi scenarios and how it could be used for a new type of eugenics, then that seems like a very, very far away reality because of the scientific barriers that currently exist. So yes, uh, there's a lot of hope for therapeutics around monogenic mm-hmm. diseases. That's good to hear that at least these uh, beneficial uh, benefits <laughs> from CRISPR might arise before we end up having to deal with the ethics of a sci-fi future. So I want to talk about your book, The, yeah. the Rise of the Necrofauna. And it deals with this quite provocative and quite um, makes it into the media a lot, this idea of de-extinction bringing species that have gone extinct back to life because we know their genomes and we can edit genomes, we can do cloning, we can do things like this, and we could potentially bring back species. So in an episode we've got coming up about ecological collapse, we talk about some mass extinctions, such as the famous one of the passenger pigeon, which was this bird that used to fly in flocks billions strong over North America, if you read some of these old accounts, that we managed to successfully hunt to extinction. Um, And then I think we all occasionally hear news from the projects that are ongoing to recreate extinct species like the woolly mammoth, uh, these uh, giant creatures that were sort of hunted to death by humans a long time ago. So how do you view these efforts at the moment? Do you think we'll bring these extinct species, big mammals, back to life? And are the main barriers to, say, a zoo with a woolly mammoth and a saber-toothed tiger, are they scientific or ethical or funding related? What's the state of play there? 
I don't think we'll ever bring any of those species back. And that's because of the particulars around what de-extinction can and can't do. So we can't actually resurrect the originals because you've got the interplay between genetics and environment that is important to have made that species what it was when it was alive. Instead, we can get very close approximate versions or facsimiles of extinct species by using the types of technologies you mentioned and engineering the genetics of the extinct species in new animals using their closest living relatives as templates to build their genetics into. So in many cases, you have hybridization, for example, with the Woolly Mammoth Project that George Church has currently in his lab at Harvard, they're using the woolly mammoth's closest living relative, which is the Asian elephant. And so using Asian elephant cells, editing woolly mammoth specific genes into them, you can start to bit by bit cobble the woolly mammoth's genome back in some kind of nearly complete form by changing Asian elephant DNA in the places where you see that they differ. However, there will always be some bits of Asian elephant in that genome. And we don't have a hundred percent certainty of all of the woolly mammoth DNA in a perfectly synthesized genome because DNA degrades and some of it's lost. And we don't know which bits of it are missing when you're working with ancient DNA because you don't have a full fleshy version of it to compare it to. Um, Then there could always be some small genetic differences And then you've got to gestate that embryo that you've edited of the Asian elephant containing woolly mammoth specific genes for, you know, the traits that you want to give it that made it woolly mammoth like, such as that thick, iconic, shaggy mane of hair or fatty insulating skin or the ability to bind and release oxygen in its blood at freezing temperatures so that these animals could re-inhabit the Arctic habitats where woolly mammoths were, such as Siberia and the Yukon in northern Canada. Then you've got to raise, you've got to grow that embryo somewhere. So where do you do that? Inside a surrogate elephant, perhaps, which will then introduce all sorts of microbiotic and hormonal environmental changes to that developing fetus that the original mammoths never experienced. So we see in in all conceivable scenarios with de-extinction that there are these differences, which mean we don't get identical copies of the originals back, but we we create close facsimiles with de-extinction. And yes, with that, I think we will be seeing some activity. I don't expect it to be this widespread way of doing conservation where, you know, any animal that goes extinct, we start de-extincting in its closest living relative. But I do see there being um, realistic successes coming down the pipe for things such as the Woolly Mammoth Project and the Passenger Pigeon Project that's being worked on. Um, Perhaps we'll see the gastric brooding frog successfully cloned down in Australia with Michael Archer's group because they've had some good progress on that and a variety of other species. So you're seeing a sort of sense where, I mean, I guess the idea of having passenger pigeons come back and fulfill the ecological niche that they once did in North America is, is unrealistic because for for a start, things have moved on. And also, as you say, there's not necessarily that much motivation for humans who are the drivers behind this to do that. But you can see it happening in the case of these particular species um, that are of special interest to humans, either because they're iconic, like the saber-toothed tiger or the woolly mammoth, or potentially because they have uh, the sort of genetic biodiversity that we might be interested in. Um, in their genomes, you know, for experimenting on them and looking at their behavior and seeing 
I think there's a there's a tense to there's a tendency to look at biology in quite an extractive way. So when people talk about why should we care about biodiversity, one of the things they say is, well, what if the species that goes extinct tomorrow is the one that has the cure for cancer or something like that? And you think, well, we're looking at genomes mm-hmm. and genetics in quite an extractive way there. But I mean, that is a reason why you would potentially consider de-extincting a species or, or looking at it in that sense. So, I mean, do you see this being used in medical contexts or do you see it being used so that someone can say, I've got the zoo with the world's only quote unquote woolly mammoth or the world's only T-Rex or something like that? I mean, is it like a Jurassic Park scenario or what? Well, as a scientific movement, de-extinction scientists, especially under this, the supporting banner of an organization called Revive and Restore, which is a nonprofit that has been helping to galvanize resources for de-extinction over the last few years and bring the community of scientists working on different de-extinction projects together to really be able to do their work the best way that they can. They are interested only in what's called ecological restoration. So this is the idea that there's an ecosystem which has lost a particularly important species, which is thought of as a keystone species. If that kind of keystone species disappeared, and that means that their ecosystem role is no longer carried out and all sorts of productive relationships that it was key to harboring break down, then if we can create some animal that has the traits of that extinct keystone species and reintroduce it into that habitat, you can fill in some of that hole that has been ripped open from its extinction and increase the ecological productivity of that space. Now, this is the only reason that these these scientists put forth as to why it should be taken seriously as a potential conservation tool for ecosystems. However, due to the high degree of bioengineering required to make a variety of these candidate species, if and when they succeed, many of them will be patentable, which because of the the bioengineering aspect that makes them clearly different from the natural variety. And so that opens up all sorts of questions about how people might want to profit from such animals in unecological ways. And if the idea is that you want to restore ecosystems with populations of de-extincted animals, that means they need to be able to live in the wild and to sustain themselves there. And so having a mammoth in a zoo will not at all meet that goal. And perhaps zoos will be used as intermediaries between labs and the great outdoors and that's what people involved with revive and restore tell me they expect they would happen to play a role as transitionary spaces but it would be uh, you know on so many grounds really a terrible thing if de-extinction only served to make curiosities that humans flock to pay to see on a sunday with their family because they would have no ecosystem role then to fulfill. And of course, there's all sorts of animal welfare issues that you have to think about. I think that we will see de-extinction happen in terms of laboratory success. Now, whether you can make one recreated mammoth and whether you can make a whole population that can go and rewild Siberia are two extremely different questions with many different levels of complexity attached. So I think they're saying that de-extinction is possible in a lab-based setting on a technical basis is, is I'm not saying that I 
can foresee that we're necessarily going to be able to easily rewild habitats with self-sustaining populations of these animals. It's too mm-hmm. early and to live in a world where, I mean, I suppose one example would be because a lot of species that are often driven to extinction by humans serve the function of apex predators in the uh, food chains that they were once part of. And so obviously when you kill an apex predator, it has a very big impact on the rest of the food chain. So that's an example of where you might want to use it, I suppose. Um, it's, it's It's so fascinating to think about the conflicting aims of people who might be interested in this. And yet it seems that, at least from what you said, all of the scientists who are concerned about it, I mean, you do tend to find that scientists aren't necessarily as evil as the people who uh, (laughs) like to talk about them in the media would suggest, and they're normally in it for good reasons most of the time. Um, So it's good to know that they're more (laughs) concerned with rewilding than having the only copy of a species. And yet that, that again, is a fascinating concept, the idea that you could copyright a genome because you've partially modified it. And it moves into all of these concerns that people are starting to have about, you know, is is my genome my property? If I could create a clone of, uh, I don't know, Taylor Swift or someone like that, is it? it have I, am I infringing copyright in some sense? It's um, it's a whole world mm. of ethical and moral problems, I suppose. And in terms of sorry, in terms of the moral problems, I think one of the things that must be a concern with de-extinction is the moral hazard aspect of it. You know, economists talk about a moral hazard in terms of uh, climate change is a good example because people talk about geoengineering projects now that would potentially uh, have the possibility of reversing some of the symptoms of climate change while not necessarily addressing the root cause. You have to say it with a lot of caveats because it's a very scary idea. And the major concerns people have about researching this stuff is if people think, ah, it's okay to screw up the climate in 50 years, we'll have amazing carbon suckers and technology will save us all, then they won't act on what they should act on. And of course, this must be a big concern, given that we're in a sort of anthropogenic human caused mass extinction at the moment, um, is the idea that people will say, well, if we need to bring a species back to life, we can do it as long as someone saves the information, that's all we need. Absolutely. This is a a very quick accusation from many conservation biologists, particularly about de-extinction, saying that it's just a massive distraction that won't do any real good and in fact is dangerous because it could introduce this moral hazard in our mindset as a society that allows us to become even more relaxed than we already are at watching animals fall over the brink of extinction. Because of course we have this around us constantly and we don't do all that much to really stop preventable extinctions. And so if we're told that we can just reconstitute important parts of the genetic diversity of extinct species at some more opportune future moment, then we might become, you know, okay with the idea of extinction happening at an increasing rate than it already is. And uh, when I was researching for my book, I met with a leading conservation biologist by the name of Stuart Pym who has been in the field for decades and has contributed so much and barely one question into our interview. He just told me how disappointed in me he was that I was paying attention to de-extinction, that I was writing about it, that I was adding a narrative to the pile of stories that get people used to the idea that it could actually work because of this moral hazard that it will inject into our thinking around extinction when what we need to be doing is getting to the grassroots level of tactics for dealing with species loss 
in the ways that we have for a long time without getting, you know, seduced by this shiny new set of tools over in the corner by what he said were just a bunch of white guys wearing lab coats saying that they can save the planet because they're extremely hubristic. And so I can understand his concern a hundred percent. And, you know, he's lived through things that many of the genetic scientists haven't, it hasn't been part of their repertoire, such as for example, when he has, when he has had to testify in front of the United States Congress, because there are logging companies that are making proposals to log protected land and they are not allowed to because there's a white spotted owl that lives there and that is endangered. And they're trying to overhaul the rules on that to be able to get all their old growth lumber out of there. And he has to listen to these ridiculous proposals that corporations put forward, such as, Oh, well, what if we clear cut 75% of this forest we will usher all of the owls into the small remaining part. If they don't do well there, no worries. We'll take them away, put them in captivity, wait for the forest trees that we plant to grow back until they can repopulate the forest. And of course, those birds will not be around by that point. Trees take a long time to grow and, and this sort of thing. So he sees the moral hazard of this type of thinking in action, in legal contexts. And it disgusts him, and so he sees the extinction as another pitfall. Mm-hmm. I think it it all it comes back in a lot of ways to. I mean, as you talk about the different lived experience of people is very important in this in setting their own perspectives, and this mix between people who are techno optimists and techno pessimists and so on. But in some ways, some of the people who are techno optimists have to be some of the more pessimistic people about what we're going to do in the near term, like the people who are saying, okay, we have to rewild and we have to de-extinct a lot of species. And the people who say we have to geoengineer the climate so that we can fix a problem that we're not going to be able to mitigate. They're quite pessimistic about what we can do in the short term in terms of um, preventing terrible things from happening in the first place. And that's the only way that they can come around to this idea that we'll have to undo all of the terrible things that we've done at some point in the future. Um, it's 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 such a tricky issue with the moral hazard. And yet at the same time, I think you need to have people who are, you, you can't have a split between people who are ethical and people who are not ethical on the side of these things. Because imagine mm-hmm. if the only people who are researching uh, de-extinction are people who want to set up their own Jurassic Park, like a sort of evil, well, you can debate about it, an evil billionaire, for example, wants to set up their own Jurassic Park is the only person researching de-extinction or the only people researching geoengineering are fossil fuel companies who want to say look guys we've got the solution to climate change we can just spray this stuff in the stratosphere and it will all be fine so I think you need to have um, strong moral opinions on the side of people who are saying no we should never do this and also within the ranks of the people who are looking into how to do it I agree Mm-hmm. So just before we finish, and I should also say to everyone that they should definitely, um, the first thing they should do is buy Rise of the Necrofauna and read it. It's uh, coming to me for Christmas. That's going to be a good uh, Christmas Aww, And It's so nice. <laughs> and um, alongside you. that, you're also part of the Tomorrow's World podcast. Um, Tomorrow's World will be very familiar for a lot of futurists who um, used to watch the BBC back in the old days for their range of predictions. I was watching some of the predictions that were done by what was the name of the chap who used to host it in the 1970s? He's still going. James Burke, um, who predicts a lot of things in terms of uh, what will happen in the future. And 
it, it, it's it's an excellent institution that the BBC has, and it's been revived in the form of this podcast that Brit hosts. So you should all listen to that as well. Um, so on the subject of podcasting and hosting things, I want to talk about science communication because you've been very successful in this and it's what you study now and uh, I'm just starting out. And I think we can all agree that in a world where more and more people seem either actively anti-science or sceptical or maybe the people who are anti-science are more vocal, it's important that we don't become more insular and you know, calling everyone buffoons and so on. And, and that we try and get the word out about important issues for society like the de-extinction question, like CRISPR, like biotech. So what have your experiences been in science communication? What media do you think are successful? And what messages do you see people responding to? Those are great questions. Um, my experience has predominantly been in radio and podcasting, although I am now moving into interactive documentaries, so documentary made for the web and television, actually. So this is kind of new times for me this coming year. And then, of course, writing. But mm-hmm. having having spent time in laboratories and then dreamt about how to tell stories about what I was learning rather than to practice the lab bench science and eventually finding a way into it just by changing my uh, university radio show that I had, which was a music show into a science show so that I could do what you're doing right now, call people Mm -hmm. who interested me and ask them questions and have conversations that I enjoyed. I eventually just found my, my love affair with radio, which is hopefully will always be a part of my life of making it. I just adore, but in terms of successful science communication, I think it comes in many platforms, many flavors. Mm -hmm. So we've got an incredible amount of writers, YouTubers, podcasters um, that I find, you know, captivating documentary, traditional stuff. All of it is, is good, but what I find particularly successful is stuff that works with an awareness of people's values mm-hmm. because what we know from our disagreements and inabilities to get along in our siloed communication is that often uh, the messenger matters more than the message itself. Mm-hmm. You know, you can get people with different values, cultural attitudes, belief systems coming to the exact same data set and leaving with different ideas about it yes, because of the way that their values drive them to derive uh, meaning from information to serve their own value system. Mm -hmm. And so if you can work that awareness into the way that you craft your stories about science, especially on controversial issues, let's say vaccinations or climate change or something like that, Mm -hmm. then you will be much more successful, not alienating your audience's, because you don't come in there with an offensive set of very clear values that goes against theirs. But if you can have a human conversation that roots things in, in an experience that allows everyone access or at least as many people access without being um, turned off so that you can, you can retain credibility as a messenger, as a storyteller, then that's, I think really important for science communicators to particularly have in mind in these times. And there's also this whole academic research area called the science of science communication Mm -hmm. that breaks down and looks at how value systems and things like this shape the way that we understand science Mm -hmm. storytelling. Um, But then otherwise I'd say my favorite things are things that aren't didactic that don't try to hit you over the head with a capital S science, but that Mm -hmm. 
try to open you up to creative artistic explorations of science that are maybe interdisciplinary and surprising, kind of weird and colorful and playful. And then also, um, yeah, that are rooted in narrative storytelling is such a, a tool set for science communicators to use. Mm-hmm. I, I completely agree with you there. And just, uh, I don't want to talk too much about my own experience when I'm interviewing you, but um In terms of communicating physics, I think physicists of the sciences have this reputation for being ivory tower, isolated, and quite purist about their work as well. They don't necessarily like things that simplify um, the, you know, that don't require mathematics to understand it. And yet when I'm trying to tell these stories about physics, so often I find that the human angle is the best one to go for. You know, you have to talk Mm -hmm. about how someone made their discovery and, you know, what they were thinking about, what the context was at the time. And that's the best way of introducing a lot of these complicated ideas and, you know, the responses that they have to society. If you show a lot of people a set of equations, it's not that they don't want to learn about it. It's just that it's not, that you're not coming from a, a shared place. I think when this is how you talk about discussion, isn't it? You have to start at a place that's shared and then move into places that become shared because you're moving through them together. Maybe that sounds pretentious. That's I don't right. know. But um, it just, I think that sounds brilliant. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it just seems like that's the, the ideal way to go about it in some way that um, recognizes the audience and isn't just, I am a lecturer sitting on a podium and I'm going to tell you about things which I know about, which you don't. It, it, it's a very uh, old style and and quite often unsuccessful way of communicating ideas. Um, so I mean, that that's that can be pretentious. <laughs> yeah, that approach. Yeah, absolutely. So um, so yes, on the subject of science communication, if uh, anyone listening to the show wants to find out more about Brit's work, she's got a website www.britway.com where all of the new developments are uh, being posted on a regular basis. I'm sure. Um, I think that's probably all we're going to cover today, if that's all right. Absolutely. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a wonderful interview. Thank you. It's great to chat with you. Thank you, Thomas. And there we have it for this week. Now it's time to give you the big, long list of things you should do. You should follow Britt on Twitter, at Britt Ray, even though we had a jab at it in the interview. You should buy a copy of Rise of the Necrofauna, and you should subscribe and listen to the BBC Tomorrow's World podcast. For more information about our guest, a good place to go is www.britray.com. That surname is spelt W-R-A-Y, like it is in the episode title. For more information about our show, the best venue is physicspodcast.com. If you have comments, questions, or concerns, that's a good place to go with them, because you can comment under the articles, and there's a contact form there that we read too. And you can also go via that website to donate to the show, and help us keep the lights on, via PayPal or Patreon. Obviously I do all this... In my dwindling free time, with uh, the money to host the website coming out of my own pocket, so any help you can give us is greatly appreciated. Helps keep us going. If you have loved ones who inexplicably want nothing more than a bonus episode of this show, then you can get one there for just $3. And of course, we're on Twitter and Facebook and all of the other places you like to waste precious moments of your dwindling lifespan. Until next time, stay safe, and if you see a saber-toothed tiger on the street, you better hope it's one of those ethical scientists who's got a hold of it. Speak to you soon.